You're listening to Time in the Word. Free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. These words were spoken by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. at the close of his address at the 1963 March on Washington for Civil Rights. Dr. King's words conveyed something besides freedom's joy. They also hinted at its long, hard struggle. They were spoken a full century after liberty was first proclaimed for African Americans, free at last after centuries of bondage and enslavement, at last after another long century of prejudice and injustice. America's experience with slavery teaches us that proclaiming emancipation and possessing liberty are two quite different things. Freedom is not easily gained, and once gained, it is easily lost. In part one of Dr. Gonzalez's study of Galatians 2, verses 1 through 10, he will point out how precious spiritual freedom is, the price that Jesus paid on the cross to gain it, how easily it is to squander that freedom and return to spiritual bondage, and he will begin his discussion on Paul's second visit to Jerusalem. As God ministers to you through this series of studies, and as you experience God's grace in your own life, share these podcasts with others so that they too may be blessed by God's word and his amazing grace. Let us listen as Dr. Gonzalez continues his expository study of Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Many of you remember these words that were uttered by Martin Luther King Jr. during his 1963 speech at Washington at the Civil Rights Gathering. He said, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, we are free at last. Dr. King's words conveyed something besides freedom's joy. It hinted at its long, hard struggle. When he said those words, a full century had passed from when liberty was first proclaimed to African Americans uh, in America. At last, after another long century of prejudice and injustice, at last, after centuries of bondage and enslavement, came the words of Dr. Martin Luther King. We know from our own experience as a country, if you're a student of history, you know that America's experience with slavery teaches that proclaiming emancipation and possessing liberty are two very different things. Freedom, we learn from history, and it's something that Paul addresses in this text of scripture. Freedom is not easily gained, and once gained, it can be easily lost. And that's what Paul is addressing in this text of Scripture we're going to look at today. Freedom has many joys and struggles in the spiritual realm as it does have in the human realm. Freedom in Christ was Paul's main concern here, not only in chapter 2, verses 1 and 10, or through 10, but in the entire uh, epistle. This is his letter that is often referred to as the Magna Carta, of Christian liberty. Paul knew. Now this is, this is critical for us as Christians because again there's instruction. This is an epistle written in time and space to a specific, uh, uh, specific churches in a region. But it is the word of God for us today and whatever it is that he's instructing the churches, whatever it is that he's thinking about and whatever it is that is causing him to write these things, we should take note. Because times haven't really changed that much in many respects. Paul knew how precious spiritual freedom is. He knew the price that the Lord Jesus Christ paid on the cross. Listen, to gain it. 
There was a, a, a tremendous price, a price that in our minds, listen, a price that we talk about, that we preach about, that we sing about, that we rejoice about, but we don't understand. It's that freedom that we gain by the atoning death of Christ that is at stake here. He also knew how e easy it is to squander that freedom and return to spiritual bondage. That is why Paul wrote to the Galatians with the sense of urgency in which he wrote. We know from Acts and we know from Galatians that the Galatians believed the gospel of the cross and the empty tomb. We know that they had gained true spiritual uh, freedom by putting their faith in Christ crucified and in Christ risen. But they were now under the spell of teachers. Listen, doesn't this ring true to our postmodern days in America? They were coming under the spell of teachers who wanted to add the law of Moses. Now, it may not be the law of Moses today, but it is something. They wanted to add the law of Moses to the gospel of Christ. If you look at verse 1 of chapter 3, he says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has bewitched you? As a result, they were in danger of becoming enslaved all over again. Galatians 5, chapter 1. In fact, what was happening in Galatia, I think, reminded Paul of something almost identical that was he had faced some years before, most likely in Antioch, where Judaizers secretly entered the church. Now look at Galatians chapter 2, verse 4. False brothers, notice what he says, who slipped in to spy. Look at the words that he uses. Our freedom that we have in Christ so that they might bring us into slavery. Some interesting points to make here. His opponents, according to what Paul says in that verse, were essentially conducting covert operations in the church. Like undercover agents, they had sneaked into the church to see what the Gentile Christians were up to. But notice that it also says that they were more than just informants, they were slave traders. They were conspiring to hold the church hostage by what? The law. They taught the Gentiles that in order for them to become Christians, they had to become first what? Jews. In fact, their slogan can be found in, found in Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Listen to the Judaizers' slogan. Unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Another gospel. Which is, according to Paul, we saw in previous weeks, no gospel at all. Paul knew them for what they really were. Notice in Galatians 2.4 again, they were false brothers. Now just because he uses the word brothers, don't think that they were actual brothers. He just simply uses the word brothers because that's how they projected or presented themselves. But the word false nullifies what the word brothers alone would imply or mean. They were false brothers. They were enemies of freedom, which is why Paul took such a strong stand against them. Look at verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth, listen, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Again, what's at stake? The gospel. Freedom. True freedom in Christ that comes only 
through that gospel. Paul is presented here as a freedom fighter. He knew, and thus is instructing us, that people who want to keep their freedom in Christ, listen, must fight for it. Notice that the gospel he was fighting for, again, verse 5, was not a truth, but the truth. There's only one truth. And if that's not worth fighting for, what is worth fighting for? What Paul was fighting for here was truth, the truth. It was the truth that Jesus had in mind when he said in John chapter 8, verse 32, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It was this truth that the Lord Jesus had in mind in John 14, 6, when he said that he was the truth. That's the truth Paul is defending. There's only one Christ. There is only one truth. There is only one gospel. Therefore, there is only one ultimate freedom worth fighting to preserve. When you look at Paul's example, what does his example teach us? Well, from Paul's example, we learn that the price of spiritual freedom is constant vigilance. It is not enough. It is very important, but it is not enough to share the gospel. It is not enough, though it is very important, but not enough to preach the gospel. We must defend the gospel. And that's what Paul is doing here. The gospel he had first proclaimed, the gospel they had first accepted, was now being threatened. He comes back not to proclaim the gospel, but to defend that very gospel. Think of the time in, in which we live today, postmodern days in, in America. Is not the church under great pressure to compromise its message? In fact, have not many Christian groups in Protestantism, evangelicalism, already compromised that truth? I was commenting to Mary as we were coming in today, the threat that Europe, Christian Europe, has already, uh, not the threat, but where they find themselves, having not responded to the threats that came their way in a manner in which Paul did, the consequences that they now face today. Even conservative Christianity in Western Europe is down to that remnant at this point. And America is heading in the same direction. We have entire groups. I don't know where you guys all live, but I guarantee you that in getting from your house to this church, you pass probably a dozen churches or more, of which most have already compromised the message of the gospel. There's no gospel left to defend. But there is one thing we shall not, we cannot give up, and that is the freedom we have in Christ. Salvation comes only by the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. We shall not, we cannot let anyone add or subtract anything from the cross or the empty tomb. We must follow Paul's example. The narrative is not there just to tell us what happened in time and space or what one individual did in time and space. It is there to tell us that, but also to instruct us how we ought to be in the day and age in which we live. We must say, along with Martin Luther, this, and I quote, we can stand to lose, we can stand the loss of our possessions, our name, our life, and everything else, but we will not let ourselves be deprived of the gospel, our faith in Jesus Christ, and that is that. Amen. So, Paul would not let himself be deprived of faith 
in Jesus Christ either, which is why he went up to Jerusalem to fight for the freedom of the gospel. Now, the, the apostle's account to the visit of uh, his visit in Jerusalem raises an important question. How do the details in his spiritual autobiography here in Galatians match up with the historical account we find from Luke in the book of Acts? I'll just give you a quick uh, context to that to that contro- to that to you know that debate because it it is it it's critical in understanding why certain things are not mentioned in in this epistle. Acts mentions at least four visits Paul made to Jerusalem. We know from Acts chapter 9 that he made his first visit not long after his conversion. And on that occasion he became acquainted with Peter. And we find that referenced in Galatians chapter 1 verses 18 and 19. That was visit number one. His second trip was to take a gift to the poor who suffered during the severe famine. Acts chapter 11. Paul's third visit to Jerusalem was perhaps the most famous. He went up with Barnabas and others for what is known as the Jerusalem Council, Acts chapter 15. It was at this council, and this is why I bring this up, because it was at this council that the apostles officially declared the Gentiles to be welcomed to the church. A very important decision was settled at that council. The apostles' fourth visit to Jerusalem was his last, for he was arrested and sent to Rome, and we find that in Acts chapters 28 through, or 21 through 28. So which visit did Paul have in mind when he wrote in verses 1 and 2, Then after 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of revelation, uh, of a revelation and set before them, though privately, before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had run in vain. Paul indicates in this, those two verses that he went up to Jerusalem 14 years after his conversion, or 11 years after what would have been his first visit, since his first visit was about three years after his conversion. His companions on that visit were Titus and Barnabas, very important point, a Greek and a Jew. And remember the debate that's going on in the Galatian church. They went, something worth noting here, they went in response to divine revelation. It wasn't that they were summoned by the apostles to appear before a council. They were led there by revelation. But while they were there, they had a private interview, we're told, with other apostles to talk about the gospel for the Gentiles. So the question becomes, where does Galatians fit in the chronology of Acts? Is it visit number two or visit number three? At first glance, when you look at Galatians chapter two, it seems to describe the events surrounding Paul's third visit to Jerusalem, which was the Jerusalem Council visit, Acts chapter 15. But not all the facts seem to match. Furthermore, there are some important similarities between Galatians chapter 2 and Acts chapter 11, Paul's second visit to the Jerusalem church. Now this is a point of, of great importance to me in trying to figure out where this epistle fits in the chronology. The Jerusalem council settled what? Well, it settled the Gentile question. 
once for all. That was, at least in great part, the purpose of the council. At the end of the council, an official decree was issued about the status of Gentiles in the Christian church, Acts chapter 15, verses 23 through 29. And the decree was dis, uh, distributed to all the churches according to Acts chapter 16, verse 4. Now the question is this. If Galatians chapter 2 refers to Acts chapter 15, that visit, the Jerusalem council visit, where it was all settled, that would have meant that Paul wrote Galatians after the council. And if that is so, why did he never mention the council in his epistle? This would have ended, essentially, the argument and stopped the Judaizers from claiming that Jerusalem was on their side. Personally, I believe that in the chronology, Galatians chapter 2, or the visit mentioned in Galatians chapter 2, is the second, not the third. Or he would have mentioned the council, since it would have, its decision would have addressed directly the issue that the church was facing in Galatians. So, in closing, let me give you a rough chronology, a very rough chronology uh, um, for Paul's life to this point. He was converted not long after the death and resurrection of, of, of the Lord Jesus Christ, possibly somewhere around A.D. 32. We know that he spent at least three years, or around three years, in the region near Damascus. Sometime around A.D. 34, he made a short trip to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Peter. That's the one referenced in Galatians 1 verses 18 and 19. Then Paul returns to Jerusalem sometime around A.D. 45, and his main purpose for going to Jerusalem this time is to take a collection to the poor in Jerusalem as a result of the, of the, of the famine that they had experienced. And that's referenced in Acts chapter 11. Uh, when he went on that occasion, he consulted privately with the other apostles about the gospel that he had been preaching to the Gentiles, and that's what we have referenced in Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. Shortly after that visit, uh, we learned that he embarked on his first missionary journey, and it is during that missionary journey that he planted a lot of these churches in the Galatian region. The conflict we know from reading the book of Acts, we know from reading Galatians and other references elsewhere, we know that the Judaizers continued to oppose his mission, especially in Antioch. The conflict grew so fierce that eventually a church council is had to address the issue going on, not only in, in Galatia, but in other areas where the churches are. He doesn't mention the council or the decision the council had made because it had not yet happened.